When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode of the podcast, delighted to be joined by Phil Vcock, best known as the main arranger, musical director and tenor saxophonist of Jules Holland's Rhythm and Blues Orchestra. Now, Phil has multiple connections and credits with Paul Weller with arrangements and performances on every Weller album since 2017's A Kind Revolution, right through to 2021's number one LP, Fat Pop Volume 1. Phil shares his love of the jam, the Star Council, and tells us all about creating with Paul Weller in recent years. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. Hey, Phil, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for asking me on. Oh, well, no, it's lovely to have you here. Not least to talk about your connections with Mr. Weller, but also this fabulous career over the past, what, 25, 30 years, working with Jules Holland as well. We're going to dig into all this yeah. stuff. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. And, and it's nice to hear that you're a fan of the podcast as well, which is always nice. Yes, I've been listening. It's nice to hear members of the band talking. I was listening to Tom... Tom's one and Andy's one. It's funny hearing them saying, because I thought that it was just me, because I, I was like a really big Paul Weller fan, <laughs> rather embarrassingly. <laughs> and then when you get asked to sort of work with him, you kind of go, oh, it's Paul Weller. <laughs> and I thought it was just me, but it's nice to hear um, Tom and Andy have had exactly the same reaction. You know? <laughs> it's funny. I want to go right back to the beginning and understand, yes. first of all, where this love of music came from, from you. And I'm guessing it from the instrument that you play... I'm guessing, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing it started with the recorder. Exactly right, actually. <laughs> yes. That is exactly right. When I, was, when I was really tiny at my primary school, they, they uh, you know, you got sort of started. Every, I think everyone kind of got a chance to do it. But I just like really, for some reason, I, I just really took to it and I became like a sort of recorder virtuoso. I was, I, I, I really, I just really loved it. And I, I sort of, I could just do it quite, quite well. The people who were sort of most experts at, at playing the recorder got to play the, the sort of hymns that everyone sang in, in school assembly, you know. But what that meant was that you kind of were apart. You were kind of on a little sort of bandstand. There was a teacher playing the piano, but you were kind of there, up there. Everyone else had to kind of sit sit down on the kind of um, school hall floor. You know, it was all kind of mucky and revolting. And you you got to sit on a little chair looking over the people. And it was like, you're, you're kind of on the bandstand. And, it, and that I think that kind of gave me like a sort of perspective. I kind of thought, I like this. This is good. Because <laughs> they're sort of a part... We're sort of part of it and, and we're kind of leading it and it's great and it's really nice, but we don't have to kind of mix it with all the rabbit <laughs> on the floor, you know? Yeah. So kind of a bit, a bit sort of big-headed. But I became like, yeah, as I say, I became a bit of an expert and a bit of a show-off and started sort of playing the recorder with my nose and things like that. So um, I think they cut that. That's when my parents, my parents kind of um, said, well, we're going to get you something, uh, uh, something else to blow. And they got me a, a clarinet. 
So they started me on a clarinet. I was uh, taught by a fantastic guy who was, uh, he was an RAF bandsman. He's called Bill Watson because he was like a working musician. So he had, he had various bands. And while I was having my lesson, people would phone him up and, you know, ask to book the band and he'd be arranging kind of gigs and stuff. And I was thinking, this is cool. That would be quite cool to do that. You know, he's going to go off and play at a sort of, you know, some kind of party and stuff. He got me into like the kind of local sort of youth band and it was a very good youth band. It was a Hurricane Music Centre and um, uh, finally made it to the dizzy heights of the kind of concert band, which was the kind of best one in the music centre that, you know, all of all the youth bands. We went on a trip to Vienna, you know, like an exchange thing and we went we played in competitions and stuff and, and quite often won because we were good. And I just loved the whole thing of like sort of being on the bus and like, you know, see the, the older kids, you know, it's just it, the whole thing was just great, you know, and coming back from a gig late at night, kind of romance of that being in a kind of bus going down the motorway at sort of midnight, you know. Brilliant. I loved it. And I thought, I want to do this. This is great. And also, I wasn't really very much good at anything else. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about the sax is, I think it's a wise instrument choice, I think. Yes, thank you. Because it's a handy instrument to carry around. It yes. Looks, I mean, it looks sexy as hell, doesn't it? When you're well, playing that Well, that thing, was the know? other thing. Well, that's why I graduated onto the saxophone, which was because I was watching Top of the Pops and stuff and noticing that none of the bands had clarinets in them, apart from maybe Supertramp, who I didn't really like that much. But a lot of the bands had saxophones. And I thought, well, that that's like, looks a lot more glamorous. And the girls seem to really like it. So I kind of made a fuss to move on to the saxophone, which I then did. That proved to be quite a good thing. There's a little story about um, Lester Young, you know, the famous jazz tenor sax player, who, when he was a kid, he started in his, his older brothers had a band and they put him on drums. And what he noticed was that all of his brothers copped off with all the good looking girls <laughs> because he was too busy putting his drums away. And by the time he put all his drums away, they'd all kind of cleared off with, with all, the, all the good looking ladies. And he got this is wrong. So that's when he moved on to the saxophone. So it, uh, there was a precedent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did say that to Rick Buckler, like the fact that yeah, it's a lot of car- I mean, there's a lot of stuff to carry around if you're a drummer. Yeah, a lot of stuff to lug around. Exactly. And sax is dead yeah. easy, right? When was it that you first, as a Paul Weller fan, when was it you the first discovered his music? When did it mean something? Uh, well, when obviously the jam started when I was at school. Everybody in my yeah, you know, it sort of was at that time when when sort of punk punk had just happened was just happening, and lots of people was, and we were at that age where people were sort of starting to go to gigs and things like that. I wasn't really that kind of um, grown up, really. But some friends of mine had gone because the jam played. I come from High Wycombe in Bucks, and the jam I think did play in High Wycombe, and it was quite a big deal a lot of people i knew went along to it and went that was was fantastic and everyone started wearing sort of jam badges and on their school blazers and things like that and um we all read the enemy and sounds and uh melody maker and that you know when they kept poured over them and sort of see to see what was going on and um at my school there was a new classroom was built at considerable expense and they put all night new sort of tables and chairs in there was a, a sort of emergency assembly was called one day and the head teacher the headmaster said um now somebody has written their initials on the desk in the new classroom in the, in a big black marker pen um, and uh, we are going to look through the school records to find out whose initials are J-A-N. <laughs> and of course, whoever had, whoever had done it, it wasn't me, but whoever had done it had written the, like the, you know, the jam logo with the kind of M with the thing going underneath, had done that on the desk. And they thought in their ignorance that it was like someone had written their initials. I think there was a lad who was called sort of John Mitchell or something that <laughs> got sort of, Pulled up in front of the in front of the head teacher and, and sort of you know that wasn't me I didn't do it <laughs> but um, yeah so uh, so beware of writing jam on things but yeah they, they were they were very popular they were very very popular at my school I was a big fan when we got to moving the story on a little bit when I was at college and we started a band my colleagues in the band weren't such great jam fans as I was but. Because I was doing the um, brass for the band, I did sort of sneak in some uh, jam rip-off things. 
because uh, by that time the jam had started using, you know, it was the end of the end of the jam really, and they'd started using a bit of brass or like beat surrender and things like that. So yeah, we we did sort of nick a few things. In fact, our first single, the band that we had was called the Larks. Our first single was called Billy Graham's Going to Heaven. The main brass line, I know my friend Pete, who sort of wrote it, he he did nick that pretty much wholesale from the jam. There's a bit of plagiarism that went unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fair to say when Paul splits the jam, and when we'll come back to that and your feelings on that, but yeah. the Star Council, he really embraces brass. There's a lot of that on... Yes, those early exactly. Ones. Obviously, I love that, because he, he was sort of heading in a more sort of, sort of solely direction, wasn't he? That was um, very much up my strasser, as they say. So how did you feel when the jam called it a day, when Paul called it a day with the jam? You, I mean, I, I, I don't think I, I wasn't sort of suicidal or anything, but because I, 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 and then uh, I did sort of quite. I thought, well, he's probably going to do something else that's that's pretty interesting, which is what he started doing. So I just sort of went along with it, really. Did you get to see the Star Council live? Um, let me think. No. Because obviously, subsequently, I know Mick Tolbert and also Steve a little bit because Mick sort of lives around the corner from me. And also he stood in for um, Jules' brother, Chris. Like when I started playing for Jules, yeah, Mick came and did a tour or maybe even more than that with us because we lived very near to each other. We used to travel together, had a very, very good laugh. He's very funny, Mick. He's a lovely, lovely man. So take me through, how did the gig with Jules come about then? It was in this band called The Larks. Um, we had a moderation of success and uh, still, still, the, it's, it's sort of quite weird. It's got a sort of life after the band has finished. It's sort of got a bit of a life still. I mean, there are things that we did are sort of still quite popular in Japan and things like that. It's, it's one of those things where it's kind of, it, it has taken on, mostly thanks to uh, Mark Bannister, who's, who was our guitarist, who's a sort of archivist, the sort of Bill Wyman of the piece. He's really made the band sort of live on after we finished. But anyway, we stopped doing stuff and uh, I was sort of wondering, wonder what I'm going to do now. I'd started playing in this crazy sort of big band. By now I was living in Deptford. There was a band that had been formed by Roger Goslin and Paul Bartholomew at Goldsmiths it was called the Deptford Dance Orchestra and it was this kind of mad sort of band I stood in for them I wasn't even in the band at this point I, someone phoned me up and said can you come and we need someone to do lead alto part can you come and do it for this gig at playing in a pub in Deptford I said yeah brilliant I went along and um, Jules came along He'd been brought along by Ronnie Burrow, who was his sound engineer at the time. Jules had just left Squeeze and was just doing his first solo album, which was called World of His Own. He'd done the tube, so he was, he was pretty famous. And we all kind of went, Jules, <laughs> and uh, afterwards he came over and he said, oh, I really like your playing. I need some brass for my album. I'm just doing this album. Can you come to my studio and record? So me and a couple of the other guys went up and put some brass on, on his album. After that, it sort of felt like it all happened in about sort of a month. But I think it was probably over the course of a year or two years. First thing was that he was going on Wogan. At the time, Terry Wogan had that chat show that was on every night. Jules was going on and doing this song that had brass on it, which we hadn't actually played on. But um, he said, I, you know, you need, I need someone to come and do that. Can you come and do that? So he said, yeah, yeah, brilliant. So we went and did that. And then he said, I'm doing the Edinburgh Festival. It'd be really good if you could come. I can't pay you much. You'll have to find your own accommodation. Well, as luck would have it, someone we knew was doing a play and had this flat. And there was like about sort of 400 people staying in this one flat <laughs> so we all stayed on the floor in this flat and um, had a high old time it was brilliant and did Edinburgh that autumn he said I'm doing some shows on the south coast you know do you want to do those yes please so we used to go we went on and played about eight songs or something and then gradually gradually we sort of became absorbed into the fabric of the band which is the way it sort of goes with Jules' stuff really people come along and then they don't go away again it's like a kind of one of those things that just gathers gathers more <laughs> yeah, and more yeah, as, yeah. It, as it as it kind of rolls down the hill you know like more and more things like gather on it after that we were the house band for um don't forget your toothbrush it's the kind of daddy of all those um and decks saturday takeaway type shows you know where where they kind of get the audience and I don't know if you, you look you look too young to remember, Dan. No, no, I but, was in the um, I was in the audience. Get your toothbrush. Were I, you there? Yeah, I was there on the share night. Yeah. 
<laughs> Are you kidding? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so did yeah, you have yeah. your suitcase all packed and stuff? Yeah, you, you had to. You could, yeah, you had to. And weirdly, I went with my mum, which was <laughs> all right. But yeah, I was obsessed with Chris Evans. I absolutely love Chris Evans. Oh uh, wow! Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Well, it was. We had an absolute blast doing that show. It was completely brilliant. It was really, really, really good fun. Unfortunately, we did all just get completely plastered every week. It was shocking for our livers after the show because it went live, you know, and I think this the kind of afterwards, the whole just euphoria of it, everyone would just go and drink and have a big party. And it really was a big old uh, drink every, every week. Yeah, probably good that it ended for our health. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was really, really good fun doing that. It was brilliant. And then every week there'd be like a great guest on. I mean, we had some fantastic people. Uh, Cher, the Cher one was amazing because um, she came to rehearse uh, I think for some reason she was rehearsing at Jules's studio. We didn't usually rehearse at Jules's studio, but for some reason she was. She was coming in a helicopter and she wanted to land her helicopter on Blackie. <laughs> and it was like all kinds of like, oh no, the police won't allow it. And you know, you can't know it's not possible. And you know, there, it was, there was all kinds of stuff like that. She was very funny. She, I, I think she was just having a laugh, really. She, I don't think she was being a diva. I think she was pretending to be a diva. She said um, that the dressing rooms at London Weekend television were not good enough what she needed was a suite at the Ritz at the Savoy sorry which is just over the other side of Waterloo Bridge <laughs> so I think they did have to get her a suite at the uh, Savoy and then a car to get her from the Savoy over Waterloo Bridge to London Weekend Television she's like a kind of let's face it it's about a five minute walk at best yeah yeah they <laughs> <laughs> were longer in the car yeah <laughs> yeah it probably was longer in the car she was great she was very funny but i think the best guest that we had on that show was barry white who was just amazing and that particular show was the last one of the series and it was the one where they sent the whole audience to disneyland that's right yeah um and everybody got to go and barry white was just completely bemused by the whole thing i don't know what his agent had sort of told him <laughs> what he was doing but he had to sing bring me sunshine which was the theme tune and that was quite amusing when he arrived it was boiling hot it was the summer and it was boiling, boiling, boiling hot weather. And uh, he was wearing this massive overcoat. And, and he was huge. I mean, he's like sort of six foot eight or something. He's a very, very tall man. And obviously very large. And just wearing this massive coat. And he was, I remember thinking, he's like, you know, when you're a kid and you have a, a mental image of what God looks like. <laughs> and that's what, he, that's what he was like. And there was one point. Where because we got a big string section in for him, obviously because of his sound, he needs a big sort of string section. And at one point, the strings went wrong, and he was stood by Jules's piano, and he whacked the piano with his his hand was the size of a frying pan, and he whacked Jules's piano, which was mic'd up, and he went big sort of like load of reverb, but he went like that. To the same ones went ah, <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't. I don't think he was cross or anything. It was just that's that's just how he was, you know. But he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Loved it. I remember that show very fondly. I have to say, and the musical guest, and that was great. And I guess then, so at that point, is your role already changing? Where you're becoming a more as much of a, a musician as you are an arranger. You start arranging things with Jaws as well. Yes. Well, as the band grew. Um, the stuff needed to be arranged more because when there's fewer of us, we could just sort of do it by saying, right, you play that note, you play that note. As more and more people sort of came along and, and, Toothbrush was a case in point because quite often they things would be augmented by more musicians like the like the Barry White one. At the same time, we started to do the uh, Hoot Nanny, the New Year's Eve TV show, and that was with a big band. And obviously, if you've got a big band, people listening who don't know what a sort of standard lineup for a big band is, you usually have four trumpets and four trombones and five saxophones, and then a sort of full rhythm section. With that amount of musicians, you 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 need to have a proper arrangement so that people aren't sort of doubling up the same notes and playing the same things. And it needs to be properly arranged, musically arranged. And that's sort of where I started doing that, really. I mean, I, I'd sort of done it before with the Deptford Dance Orchestra and, and various other things. Uh, it wasn't like a complete shock. <laughs> but um, as, as we sort of progressed and as Jules's band became 
the big band, it became it became the rhythm and blues orchestra that it is today, which is like a sort of full big band. You know, whenever stuff a new song comes along, it needs it does need sort of arranging. Yeah, that became more my role as well as playing. And I'm guessing because Paul's been on later and Hootenanny, I mean, so many times now. Um, yes, on specials as well, like Stanley Road was a whole special and yeah. solo thing as well. I'm guessing that's where you first played with Paul would have been would have been linked to that. Yeah, song. yeah, and I think that because I think he might have been even on the, that very first Hootenanny. I can't remember. It's all sort of a bit of a blur in my head. I remember him coming on and me thinking oh my god that's it's Paul Weller he, I, I love I love his stuff and I, I thought I'm, I may, may never sort of work with him again so I better tell him how much I love him <laughs> <laughs> so so I did I did um make a bit of an idiot of myself at the end of the I remember going up to him at the end of the the whole day thinking I've got to do it now because otherwise I won't ever get a chance and saying, oh, oh, excuse me, Paul. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks, thanks so much for all the all the great music that you've given, you know, that you've you've given to us. And he went, yeah, yeah, thanks, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, man, yeah, thanks. And uh, and that was my first, I think that was my first initial kind of um, encounter with him. Luckily, I don't think he sort of remembered that or, or bore any grudge or anything like that <laughs> because. Um, Subsequently, we did like lots more stuff. Jules did a series of albums called Small World Big Band, which was lots of guests would come and sing with the band. And um, he's kind of carried on doing that ever since, really. But Paul Paul was on the first one of those. And I think I played the solo on it. I think it's, it's called I'm Gone, which was a which Jules wrote. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember if I'm on the recorded. I, I definitely played the solo when we did it live. We did it on either a later or a hootenanny, I can't remember. But anyway, that was, yeah. Then I think really my sort of getting to work with Paul in more detail, Jules was doing another record called, I think it's called The Golden Age of Song. Paul was a guest on that. I was doing all the arranging pretty much at that point. Nowadays, it's kind of spread. There's, there's more of a sort of arranging stuff. It's sort of, it's sort of better, really, because it, it kind of gives a sort of different perspectives on things, you know, rather than just one person's vision. So I was doing Paul's song, which was, uh, he wanted to do the song September in the Rain, which is an old song. I'd just been given the brief to arrange this tune, and I didn't really know quite what he wanted. So I'd done like a kind of Nelson Riddle sinatra kind of version, which actually to this time, I heard it again fairly recently and I thought, yeah, that's great. It was good. It was um, a nice arrangement, you know. Anyway, Paul came and did it and then later that day, he phoned me up and he said, yeah, I really liked your arrangement. It's not at all what I wanted to do with that song. Can you do it again? And and like, and, and then he, he sort of said, I've been listening to this sax player called Lynn Hope. And uh, I'd never heard of Lynn Hope. And he's a very obscure saxophone player from the 1950s. He, he, he converted, to, well, he was sort of famous in the 1950s, and he died in 1993. He converted to Islam, and he was kind of famous for wearing a turban, <laughs> wearing a turban on stage, even though he wasn't a Sikh or anything like that. <laughs> and he's got quite an unusual sort of sound. Anyway, he's a very obscure sax player. And, and Paul said, I want to do it. I've been listening to this guy, Lim Hope, and I want to do it like him. He gave me this CD to listen to, the only sort of CD of Lim Hope in existence, as far as I can tell. A really obscure kind of guy. I couldn't really get what he was talking about. I mean, I, I liked it, but I couldn't really quite sort of see it. Anyway, I, I sort of thought, right, well, he's, you know, he's Paul Weller, so he ought to know what he's on about. So I tried to get some of this guy, Lynn Hope, his kind of sound and everything into the arrangement. And the other thing, of course, was I, I wanted for it to be more French. <laughs> okay. So, you know, so he's mad sort of, and I trying to kind of figure all this stuff out. So we got Geraint Watkins. I don't know if you've heard of Geraint Watkins, a fantastic piano player and singer and he plays the accordion does quite a lot of work with uh, Nick Lowe and um, all those musicians really great player and a lovely lovely man anyway we got him in on the session and we did this new version and we did 
one take of it. And if you get the if you have the album of Golden Age song, that is this is the take that is on the album. It was the first take, and actually, if you can hear, if you listen carefully, you can hear me shouting out chords to the rhythm section at the end because we hadn't sort of properly gone through it and also the other thing you can hear is Jules's brother was late for the session you can hear him arriving if you've got very good sounds like a right shambles (laughs) anyway the the end result is absolutely brilliant and it's it's lovely so yeah that's uh, that's very good but you know it reminds me of those sort of Motown things where you can hear people um, using the water fountain outside and things like that one of the things that's fascinating about that as well is and, you know, here's a guy who's been you know known and playing music let's say professionally like with a record deal for like 45 years now right and still wanting to discover new music you know so much of the new music and new oh, artists yeah 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 definitely yeah, yeah the, the, the I discover comes through here I'm going to see the Mysterians tonight that's a Paul Weller recommendation that I now love right. a great band but he's also digging into the past as well and going back and finding yeah. obscure stuff and recommending oh, yeah. and liking that too. It's amazing. Very, very much so, yeah. And that sort of carried on. I think the next thing was that he phoned me up. He wanted to do a recording of They Say It's Your Birthday by the Beatles for um, Paul McCartney for his birthday. And he wanted to give it to him. So he said, can you do the brass and brass on that? So we went down and did that. And then after that, you know, he just kept phoning up to do more and more stuff. Here we are, Kind Revolution, an album that I've noticed on this this tour that he's he's just been doing. Um, Woozy Mama, the opening track, he's been playing live again. So, I mean, it's a really stand-up album. So your sax on Nova... And then two yes. different types of sax. And I'd love to know yes. what the differences are, but baritone and tenor sax on a track called Hopper. So let's talk about those tracks. How did those come about and, and what were your memories of the album? With uh, Nova, I think he wanted like that kind of mop the hoople kind of grunty sort of rock sax, like just going like that sort of gruntiness. And a baritone, a mixture of the baritone and the tenor kind of really does that. I think his instruction was to bring as many saxophones as I had. <laughs> Which I that would have that would have filled up a small van, but I, I, I did I did bring a tenor and a, and a baritone down for that session. And Hopper, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you just can't really remember the any specific instruction for that. Hopper was it's about an artist, isn't it? Yeah, about Edward Hopper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, who I wasn't really aware of. I'll be honest. Until I heard the song and then kind of found the connection. But great, Edward Hopper. He's, he, he is like sort of those. Uh, his famous one is the Nighthawks. People in the bar at night in uh, in New York. That, you know, the sort of urban loneliness kind of uh, mm. vibe. Yeah, I can't really remember too much about the instructions for Hopper. I remember that it did change quite a lot in the studio. That uh, Paul. He's very good at taking what you give him and then sort of moulding it. If it's not quite there, he's very good at just going like that and just turning it just a little bit to make it exactly what he wants. You know, he's very good at doing that. How much are you playing live as a band together versus you playing your bits and then layering them up? Later on in process, oh, that was that was um, we we recorded the brass thing. The, the tracks were had already been recorded. Brass are, are kind of like extra bits on top. So the, the the band have already been in and recorded the main tracks. They're in some sort of shape. So yeah, we I think we did um, Hopper with him on on later, and then the next one was True Meanings. Yes, so I've got that here. I know this is a podcast, but I like holding them up because I just like the feel of the vinyl. <laughs> I mean, that's a beautiful great, thing. It's a great cover, yeah. It's very good. That's very nice. I've not really ever seen the vinyl before. That's good, isn't it? Oh, it's so it's nice, mate. It's so much nicer, aren't they? Records. Let's face it. Well, they are nicer, but let's be honest, really effing inconvenient, right? So side one, <laughs> this is a double album, right? So side one, four yeah. tracks. I've then got to get up, turn it over. The three it tracks over, on yeah. side two, the same on yeah. side three, four tracks, three tracks on side four. It's not massively yeah. convenient compared to just shouting <laughs> at Alexa. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, no, true. But um, what was interesting about doing that one was that it was quite different from things I've done in the past, whereby 
he was using the brass section more as a texture or a colour rather than us playing specific lines. We were much more just a sort of a flavour. Then there's like a little sort of there's some brass there or there's like a little sort of thing underneath that. I love it. I think it's great. The songs on that are absolutely amazing. Mayfly and all those, you know, salt, what's it called? Soul? The Soul Searchers. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. great. Beautiful song. When we came to do the other aspects, you know, the um, Festival Hall show, it kind of went into that really. That was more to do with the colour and the flavour of the brass obviously because we were doing older songs on that kind of meant that there were quite a lot of lines and, and things but but it still had that same kind of thing of, of, of the brass section not being used as like for, for playing like little sort of tunes but actually just kind of adding a flavour which went really with Hannah's orchestra stuff you know Hannah Peel and I worked on that together, trying to blend the orchestra with the band. You know, that was the, that was the kind of the key thing of that, really. Those two albums together as a package, because they are obviously connected, and it's, you know, the orchestra, yeah. Hannah, and all that. So True yeah. Meanings, you know, you're arranging, playing, Mayfly, moving on. That album closer as well, White Horses, which is just a bloody... Whoa, awesome whoa. Yeah, great. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then other aspects is, like you say, it's a kind of extension of that, but then there's also digging into some of these older songs like Private Hell, for instance, from The Jam, right? Yes. Full circle. Well, I, like, I, was very ple- <laughs> <laughs> I was very pleased with that. Obviously, you know, that's a jam song. And what I did, I was very happy. I, I'd like to claim that I came up with the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles bit on the bit of being called and still at that bum, bum, da, 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 which Steve Craddock really loved. And uh, <laughs> he actually is, I think there's like a little, there's some sort of little film where he kind of, he kind of talks about that bit because he liked it so much. <laughs> I'd like to big headedly put my hand <laughs> off and claim that bit, please. That's my idea. <laughs> Why the heck not? Because um, yeah, Boy About yeah. Town was another one, wasn't it? From the chat. Yeah. And uh, uh, um, what's the uh, Butterflies one? Um, that's great. Yeah. Amongst Butterflies, which um, it, that's the one on the, like, the festival hall where he actually introduced the brass section yeah because it was quite tricky <laughs> it's quite a tricky opening yeah, yeah it's our great brass section and they're going to play then, then we had to play that really hard bit <laughs> so make sure you get it right was, yeah yeah once you've been because you've just been introduced because everybody's listening now and the yeah, guys who were playing with you so we had it's Alistair White Chris Storr and Jess Holder yeah. how are they connected are they part of Jules's band are they just uh, yes yeah they were, I mean all those people have at one time or other been in Jules's band, yeah. Chris is still with us. Jess has moved on and Alistair is he's like a sort of genius really Alistair so he, he just kind of does it anyone that needs a, a, a good trump a trombonist they get Alistair because he's, he's amazing I think he won the Young Jazz you know BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year or something years ago right. he's, he's very very good now the thing about True Meanings is still really recent for me well this is like three four years ago and it wasn't quite a number one album which seems ludicrous but anyway since then, we've had two new albums from Paul and another live album, The Barbican Geek. Yeah. So yeah. let's go through those. So On Sunset, 2020, The Saviour of Lockdown. Yeah. What a beautiful summer album that was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, that was good fun doing that. There was one, which is the one that's got the post horn on it. I can't even remember the name of the track now. Yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. might be on Walking. But there's, yeah, there's like... Um, a post horn. Paul said, "I want, I want a like post horn sound." And I was at my mother-in-law's for Sunday lunch one week, just before we done did the session. And I noticed that she had hanging up on the wall this old antique post horn, like a big long one, right? Great big long sort of post horn. I said, "Does that, Sheila? Does that actually is that actually a thing, or is that like a sort of fake?" One. She's oh no no it's a genuine it's a genuine post one it's like really it's an antique one you know it's like original thing it's quite valuable. I said well you wouldn't if I borrowed that would you to put on the side, <laughs> so I said no no that's all right she's very nice very nicely allowed me to take it and Chris Store played the actual antique post horn 
that you can hear on that track going like that. It's actual, actual proper. And we've got very good photos because it's so long. He couldn't get the right amount of pressure. He had to hold it close to his mouth to get the right amount of pressure on his lip because it's a very kind of narrow mouthpiece. So Alistair and John Furkle, who's doing the other trumpet, because it's so long, it needed someone else to hold it whilst he played it. So yeah, we got photos of him actually, <laughs> actually playing the post horn on that. But yeah, on that album, there were some great directions from Paul. I think what, and I think I am. Well, there's a little interview that I did where I talked about it. I think one of them he said he said to me, "I want this to sound like." The James Last Orchestra going on holiday to New Orleans. <laughs> so if you make it make it sound like that. So I went, oh, okay, Paul, right, right. Piece of cake. So I went off and, <laughs> yeah, so I went off and sort of tried to make that work. Yeah, I think it works. So it's, I think it's. I think that's that might be the end of walking as well. It does that. I think my favourite one on that is the actual on Sunset track. I think that's great. Really good. I said to Andy who was playing the flute I want it to sound like I don't know if you know that Randy Crawford song called Rio de Janeiro Blue it ends with almost exactly the same way as on Sunset with the kind of waves in the flute I think it's Ernie Watts is the, is the guy who's playing the flute on the Randy Crawford one beautiful he's such a great player he's a brilliant brilliant flute player really lovely really good but the actual sectional stuff I love on that as well and that the way it blended with the girls the backing vocals really not, I love that track I think it's a great track that. yeah yeah yeah. that's the staves isn't it on the backing is that on that one yeah I think it is yeah yeah it's such a special LP that I think there's so many standout moments Baptiste is one of my favourite ones I have to say and I don't oh, think he's played that live yet I don't think I've seen anywhere where he's played that live it's a brilliant yeah, song yeah I got very fanboy excited about the fact that there's a bit on uh, Equanimity where Jimmy Lee from Slade does the little violin solo and then a few bars later I, I, well, I, I sort of basically duet with him I'm playing I do like a little clarinet bit and uh, when I came out I was going I want to, I want to thing with Jimmy Lee it's amazing because <laughs> I was such a big Slade fan you know as a kid so yeah that was, a, that was very exciting Brilliant. Well, and it must be nice to see, you know, there is the reception it gets, but also a number, another number one album. From- oh, well, I, was, I, was, I was made up when I saw it was number one. I was going around and sort of going, oh, oh, oh the number one album. But it's the first time that had ever happened, you know. So I was very pleased about that. Less than a year later, we then have Fat Pop Volume 1 and another number one yes. album. <laughs> yes, but I'm not sure that I'm on that. I might be. I don't yeah, know. There you are. You're on, in, you're, I'm, 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 yeah, you're on In Better Times, saxophone on In Better Times. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to check this out then more because just before the lockdown hit, I went down to Black Barn and um, played on some stuff. And Paul, he wasn't really sure what it was. I think he said it was, he, he was thinking of it, it was going to be an EP. I remember that because that, that, I think that's the last time I, I went down. I think that's the last time he called me, actually. <laughs> but anyway. I went and I, I was a bit worried because I took my uh, my daughter came down with me, uh, my daughter Daisy, and she is just starting out. Uh, she's a very good singer and songwriter, and she's she's just sort of starting out. And I said, "Look, come down because Paul's he's really really nice, and he won't mind. You can just kind of watch what goes on, and you know, just hang out." I went into the actual studio, and she stayed in the control room with Paul and Stan and Charles. By the time I'd done. I'd been in there for ages. And when I, by the time I came out, her and Paul were like sort of best buddies. He sort of was getting her to play him all her demos. And, you know, he made her play him a demo over the studio speakers. And he was really lovely. And he said, oh, it's great. I really like this. It's really, he's giving her advice. And, you know, really, really nice. Which he didn't need to do. You know, he could have just sort of gone, what are you doing bringing your daughter down? You know, it's what, you know, what you doing? But he was just so lovely about the whole thing. Anyway, I was slightly worried because he hasn't called me since. <laughs> <laughs> He's fuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perhaps he, perhaps he thought, oh, what a liberty. What a liberty bringing his daughter there. I don't know. I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he didn't. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Fat Pop, I think, was, from what I've read, was done in a very different way, quite a lot of it, with obviously everybody in lockdown doing things remotely, yeah. sending them in and stuff. And um, Sure. 
it's a again i mean you know amazing that he keeps moving forward keeps wanting to do new material and he's not just kind definitely, of definitely yeah not just digging into he, the he um he knew that i was this is a sort of uh, an example really of that because he he knows that um one of my big heroes is uh tubby hayes the sax player tubby hayes and he knew some guys who'd done a documentary about tubby hayes and he, he got them to send me the dvd and like kind of the whole sort of packaged thing oh that's really it's really great because he, he didn't need to do that it's just mm. it was just like a sort of look you were like you really like tubby hayes don't you i'll send i'll get i'll get him to send you thing and he didn't forget you know because people sort of say those things don't they but he, he's you know hit, there it there it was it arrived like a week later you know oh, brilliant nice. yeah really nice yeah, yeah really nice really really nice now we also have to talk about a couple of things. The one, obviously, yes. we're, getting, we're getting back to live music now. We're getting back on the road. How yeah. does it feel getting back out there with Jules and the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra again? Oh, it's fantastic! It's so brilliant. We managed to do our autumn winter tour last year, and we managed to complete the whole thing. We didn't get any COVID uh, problems. I think it was maybe the last show. One of the singers missed because she got COVID. But we were very, very strict. Everyone had to test every day. No guests. It was a treat, actually, because no guests were allowed backstage <laughs> at any point. Um, so you have to do all that uh, schmoozing, that mingling. Exactly, yeah, exactly. You <laughs> could just sort of relax. And um, uh, I think everyone quite liked that, to be honest. Not that we don't love our guests, but, you know, it's <laughs> quite nice to have that, that sort of peace and quiet. It was quite a nice sort of thing. But because we did that... I think we all managed to kind of stay COVID free. And I think we're going to continue doing that. We've got some shows, we've got some shows in Europe coming up and then our sort of summer dates. We've got quite a lot of summer dates. So I think that's going to stay, you know, the sort of testing, regular testing. And I mentioned to Dave Swift when he was on the podcast, it's always a great night out seeing you guys live. It's such a brilliant, it's such a, it's yeah, a part, it's you. a party night, isn't it? It's great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's our aim, you know. And it's always nice to see the little surprises. Gary Crowley the other week was talking about meeting Lulu at a cafe. Um, I saw Lulu oh, yeah. performing with you guys once. Chris Difford is on the great. podcast. Lulu you know. is fabulous, yeah. yeah. So there's yeah, Mark Almonds, you know, there's amazing people that you work with as well. Well, well my... my um uh, as I say, my, my daughter Daisy is, is kind of just starting out. She did a couple of supports for Jules before Christmas. And um, Lulu came out with us when my daughter and her sister were lit really tiny. And they used to call her Auntie Lulu. And so now when Daisy did her supports just before Christmas, Lulu was by the side of the stage, whooping and hollering. And Daisy was going, look, it's Auntie Lulu. It's my Auntie Lulu. <laughs> uh, and all of her band, Daisy's band, were coming in. Who's that? Who is that woman? They go, She's going, it's Auntie Lulu. Okay, well, who's that? Well, she won the Eurovision Song Contest, you know, yeah. did a bomb thing, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I also, before you go, we have to talk about bread making. So this is, yeah. I mean, a lot of people were bread, were making bread during lockdown. It was a new thing. Yeah. But yeah. for you, it went kind of full thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the, the story with that, well, well it, was, it was a godsend, really. Years and years ago, my friend and I, it all started, our kids were at um, primary school and uh, all the dads, you know, it was like a sort of a group of dads and we'd go to the pub. And one night in the pub, we were sort of saying, this is great, but it's not very, you know, it's not very good for us just kind of going to the pub and it's a bit, you know, why don't we try and find something else that we could do all together? that would be a bit more useful. And someone, there, there was a place that just opened and they were offering sort of, you went for a night and you did like a sort of introduction to making bread and all that. So let's try that. It looks like quite a laugh. So we went and did that. It was great. It was really good fun. And you sort of took your own booze along and it was like you could have a drink and you'd do making this bread and having a laugh. That went well. So then they did like an advanced course. So we said, well, should we do that? That'd be good. So we did that. And of course, blokes being blokes, it all became like very kind of competitive we all started we all started baking bread at each other and going look i've made a whatever is sourdough rice sour, yeah, you know yeah. this is you know all this and um who could bake the best bread anyway people fell away and it was just ended up with me and my friend simon and we, we kind of um continued doing it and what we decided to do is like just because we because we were making this bread and there's more than we could eat before we were trying and people were asking us can we buy a loaf or few blah 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 so we started sort of selling the bread we would do it every morning we'd sell bread at the school gates simon is a carpenter uh, and he got sort of fed up with being a carpenter i suppose you'd say he had a bit of a midlife crisis and he decided he didn't want to do carpentry anymore he wanted to 
go into the baking in much bigger way. So he built himself a sort of bakery in his garden, like a bread, we called it the bread shed. Got all sort of industrial ovens in there and all the proper stuff. And he sort of went into it in a very big way. We were supplying sort of local cafes and delis and stuff. And it was all getting a bit out of hand because I already had a job. <laughs> I was going, I, I can't really keep up with this, you know. So I said, look, you carry on doing it. I'm, t- I'm turning in my uh, bread basket. He carried on doing it. He was making all the croissants and the pastries and amazing. His bread's incredible. It's really delicious. Then, of course, the lockdown came along. So, really, you know, there's no gigs and, you know, there's no, we've got any money. And he said, well, look, I've rushed off my feet because I've got all these orders. People want stuff delivered. Let's get a little van and you can deliver all the, all the bread and, and the croissants and all that. So that was my lockdown job was I was bread delivery man. What a great job. I loved it. It was really good because people were always happy to see me. <laughs> yeah. You look on their door and you go, look, I've got these lovely croissants and this like sort of these cinnamon buns and this lovely loaf for you. And they go, oh, fantastic. Brilliant. I've just made some coffee as well. Right. So everyone was happy to see me and it was a really lovely little lockdown job. It was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, now I've got a bit too busy to... Uh, yeah, but I'm st- I still make uh, I still make bread for just for the family, you know. It's more of a hobby <laughs> now. It got out of hand. I love that. That's classic guys though, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you start out with just, yeah. just the course and then actually everybody's trying to yeah, do the next right. one. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm better than you. <laughs> Try my plaited loaf. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, this has been so fabulous. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. I have two final questions for you. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star yeah. Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with? I see. I knew you were going to ask me this, and I did try and think about it, but I couldn't. I just couldn't think of one song because I find with Weller songs that there's little bits of them there's like little corners of, of his songs that just get in your head and stick there and like things you know a little something will happen and that will it will come it will just spring into your head you know little phrases little um are you, little, sa- are you little, saying that you need like a little um, stars on 45 medley is that what you mean <laughs> <laughs> no, I think if if pushed, okay. So if pushed, I'd say probably maybe Broken Stones that would be up there. Um, but it's a long, long road. That one. Oh yeah, I love yeah. that one. Uh, will probably be my two, I guess. But but uh, there's so many. I mean, there's there's so many, and I could, it, it, you know that that that's not to say that it wouldn't be completely different tomorrow <laughs> or, or even later on today. You know, what those are the two that I'm thinking of at the moment. Okay, what would you put on straight after this conversation? I think I'm going to have a listen to that track that I'm, I'm apparently on on Fat Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't really remember it, so I think I'm going to have a listen to that. In Better but, Times, uh, it is. In Better Times. It's, it's a penultimate track on the album, yeah. Right, right, right. I have listened to it, but I can't recall that one. But I, I, yeah, I'd probably listen to that, and then um, I'll probably go back and listen to a bit of uh, True Meanings, I think. That would, prove, that would probably be... Yeah. Mayfly and Soul Searchers, maybe. Um, right, final question. So the purpose of this podcast is obviously to yes. chat to amazing people like you and your career and hear about that and your connections with Mr. Weller. But really, deep down, let's all be honest, it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it happens, what should I ask him? When I, I say I was listening to Gary Crowley's podcast with you and his answer to that question I thought was absolutely ingenious. You'd ask him what of his work he likes the best because that would be fascinating to know I'd really like to know that yeah what would you ask him um let me how would I phrase this why how is he so cool what's at the bottom of that how can he be how can he remain so cool after so many years because that's tricky isn't it that's a tricky business to kind of remain like credible and just cool after all this time, you know, the first time I went to Black Barn and there was um, in the toilet, there's a kind of cover from the NME from like really early. And it's Paul is kind of got like a sort of loincloth on and he's got like kind of war paint on and he's coming out of a kind of bush with a sort of arrow or something like a sort of, you know, African tribesman or something. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's I think the, the headline is something like Wello goes native or something like that. And that was like in sort of 1980 
two or something. You know, and you go, was that so long ago? How's he met? How, like, how's he managed to kind of stay like so kind of great and so kind of cool after all these years? It's 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 very impressive, very impressive thing. I mean, he'll always be like that, wouldn't he? I don't think. Yeah. But what what does he think? Is it what what does he think? That would be quite a good question, I suppose. Yeah, that's a nice one because also, I mean. You, but the clothing and he, you know, he obviously takes care and, and you yeah. know, how he looks, his style issues. But the thing I was thinking the other day, we went for a walk with the kids and as you do, early spring walk, muddy old day. He's got yeah. young kids. I was like, what's he, what's he wearing in the woods? I can't imagine He's him in wellies. Got, can you? No, I, I actually can. I think, I think when you, when you go down there and he goes, he pops to the, Fish and chip shop in his in the in his mini, you know. He's just he's quite normal like that. I think. <laughs> I think he probably has got wellies. Yeah. They're probably pretty cool, stylish wellies. But nevertheless, on a Monday night when he's like, you know, he's, he's getting ready for bed, he's just done his teeth, and he's like, shit, I forgot to put the bins out. He's not going down in yeah. his pajamas, is he? Out the front, surely, you know. <laughs> it's all things he like really that. Is. You know, I think I I know I know. I mean, it's the same. It's the same with George. Really, you kind of think, well, he's not. He's not. Going and buying vegetables in Sainsbury's, is he? <laughs> that's where, maybe that's where we're going wrong, Dan. Going to have people to do that stuff for you. <laughs> that's the dream, man. That's the dream. If this, po- <laughs> this podcast takes off, you never know, right? <laughs> uh, Phil, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much. I hope hey, to see thanks you very much. Dan. I hope to see you live with the big band orchestra and with Jules yeah, and nice at some one. point soon. But um, yeah, cheers, man. This Brilliant. has been great. All right, lovely. Thank you. My thanks once again to Phil Vcock for joining me on the podcast. Check out my show notes for more information on this episode just head to my website paulwellerfanpodcast.com you'll find an article up there with lots of links and things you can listen to in fact I've made a playlist so you can hear Phil's contributions to Paul Weller's music as well all the details paulwellerfanpodcast.com whilst you're there if you fancy it you can buy me a virtual coffee or gift yourself or a friend some of our new exclusive official merchandise we've also got some live podcasts coming up Halifax as part of Paul Weller Day July the 3rd when Paul plays Halifax, plus news coming soon on some big things we're doing at the exhibition in Brighton. This is the modern world. All the details, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Don't forget to share a link to this podcast on your social media channels. If you've enjoyed it, please do leave a five-star review as well and get in touch on social media at wellerfanpod on Twitter or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. In the next episode of the podcast, we hear from Debsy Wicks. One-time Dolly Mixture and Paul Weller record label signing tells us all about her experiences in music and beyond over the past 40-plus years. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.